facing the elements and coming out today. Thanks for uh, attending this uh, this uh, event. Uh, my name is Mac Owens. I'm the Dean of Academics here at the uh, Institute of World Politics. If you don't know anything about IDOVP, we are a independent Graduate School of National Security Affairs. Uh, we uh, offer three master's degrees, full-time, full MAs, uh, executive and a professional MA and 18 uh, certificates. And as of today, we've also been approved to uh, offer a professional doctorate. So we're very thrilled about that. That uh, news just came over the wire just a few minutes ago. I'm, uh, we, we have a lot of public events here, and uh, so we have about 200 a year. We add them all up. And of course, we have Veterans Day is coming up uh, on Saturday, and we thought it was uh, a, an appropriate time actually to talk about uh, a little bit about this. It's important to me because I think uh, you know Americans have kind of an interesting attitude about uh, veterans, and that's especially the case these days when such a small percentage of Americans serve. And one of the things I passed out here. I just found today it has nothing directly to do with my talk today, but it's by a retired Army general, and it's uh, how to talk to a veteran. And uh, the interesting thing about that, of course, is that uh, a lot of people don't know how to talk to veterans because the fact is that um, there once was a time when we had conscription when everybody probably knew somebody who was either in the military or at least knew somebody who knew somebody who was in the military. That's not necessarily the case uh, today. So, uh, I think that uh, this is a, a, a topic I find interesting anyway, and I hope you will as well. Uh, just a little history, of course, uh, November 11th, 1918 is Armistice Day, the end of World War I, and a year later Woodrow Wilson basically used the opportunity to suggest honoring those who had fought in the what at that time was called the Great War. In 1926, Calvin Coolidge expanded that a little more, again, offering the opportunity for people to, um, to reflect on the war and those who had served. Uh, 1938 became a national holiday, and in 1954 the name was changed to Veterans Day to take account, of course, of all of those who had served in all of Americans' wars. I always like to make the distinction, you know, so that we know the difference because it's frequently conflated. Uh, Memorial Day is different than Veterans Day. Veterans Day is the day we celebrate all veterans. Memorial Day is specifically focused on those who um, have died. And my question is, you know, what do Americans owe to uh, veterans? And uh, that's you know, a straightforward question. Um, you know, uh, they, they, the article that I passed out to you cites Rosa Brooks, who's a law professor over at uh, Georgetown, and she says, look, there are three models when you think about the uh, about veterans. One is hero, okay, and that's, uh, you know, basically putting uh, veterans on, uh, on pedestal of some sort. There's another one that dates back to, uh, especially to Vietnam. I recall, 
That's basically, uh, you know, coal, stone coal killers, especially killing children. We presumably liked to do that when we were in Vietnam. Uh, that's more or less gone away, but the flip side of that, another one that comes from Vietnam, is also the idea of the veteran as victim. And uh, a lot of that, has, again, has its genesis in the, uh, in, the, in the Vietnam War. I wrote a review once of a, of a, of a novel, maybe some of you have read, uh, called Matterhorn by Carl Marlantis. If you've been watching the, uh, the Burns Novick uh, series, He's featured very prominently, and Carl Marlantis is. And uh, I, uh, when I wrote this, I, I got a, a message from a friend of mine who said something that uh, when thinking about uh, that by providing a real understanding of war and its sacrifices, memoirs and novels such as Matterhorn make it possible for our fighting men to finally get some genuine gratitude. Not sympathy or pedestals, but real gratitude. Every civilian should understand that the veteran has done nothing less and also nothing more than what is sometimes required to maintain liberty. And I like to take that as a, as a starting point. Uh, that veterans should not be elevated to something special, but at the same time they should not be treated as, as victims. And I'm going to take my text, my sermon today is based on basically three readings. One comes from Jim Mattis, uh, who's now the Secretary of Defense, of course. And just after he left active duty, he gave a speech at the Marine Memorial Club in uh, San Francisco. And he responded to a question that somebody had asked about the idea of, 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 of um, Americans, of soldiers, veterans being, uh, being victims. And he replied uh, that there are some people who think that you're damaged goods and should be labeled victims of two unjust and poorly executed wars. I don't buy it. The truth instead is that you are the only folks with the skills, determination, and values to ensure American dominance in this chaotic world. There's no room for military people, including our veterans, to see themselves as victims, even if so many of our countrymen are prone to relish that role. While victimhood in America is exalted, I don't think our veterans should join those ranks. Now, one of Mattis's targets is the component of the major veteran as victim narrative is the idea of post-traumatic stress disorder which he calls a disease orientation towards combat stress. Now, the fact is that anyone who has experienced uh, combat is never the same as they were before. One who has seen a comrade die or who has looked in the eyes of an enemy who he is about to kill, lest his enemy kills him, is forever transformed. But the disease orientation under underlying PTSD paints the combat veteran as one who is broken, and cannot be repaired, who is a threat to society, and needs to be medicated, and who might explode in violence at any time. While not denying the existence of PTSD, I'll come to back to that later, Mattis offers an alternative which he calls post-traumatic growth. Post-traumatic growth has echoes of Nietzsche's aphorism from Twilight of the Idols. 
quote from Life School of War, what does not kill me makes me stronger. In Mattis's view, PTG, post-traumatic growth, describes the fact that most veterans return from war with the potential to be stronger than before. The post-traumatic growth orientation holds that what the returning veteran needs a time and support in order to actualize the potential for growth. Carl Marlandes makes a similar, uh, similar argument in What It Is Like to Go to War, his nonfiction follow-up to Matterhorn. Marlandes calls war the Temple of Mars, a sacred space that possesses a mystical quality for those who fight it. A major thrust of Marlandes' argument is that the modern liberal society doesn't recognize the psychological split that war engenders in those who fight it. Killing is what soldiers do for society, but the split it creates in the soldier's psyche is a spiritual weight that the combat veteran will carry uh, for the rest of his life. In the HBO series The Pacific, the father of future Marine Eugene Sledge, a genteel Southern physician who served in World War I, tells his son that the worst thing about treating those combat boys from the Great War was not that their flesh had been torn, but that their souls had been torn out. Marlandis captures the source of the spiritual burden from the soldiers of a liberal society, writing that war is the antithesis of the most fundamental rule of moral conduct. To survive psychologically in the proximity of Mars, one has to come to the terms with stepping outside of conventional moral conduct. This means coming to terms with guilt over killing and maiming other people. But when, what one does or witnesses in war is properly seen as a source of strength, not victimhood. Another veteran, Dave Danello, who is the author of a book called Blood Stripes, invokes the uh, mythology of Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces, when he talks about uh, returning veterans. He wrote a book, that is, uh, Dave wrote a book called The Return, and he, uh, in which he cites uh, Campbell's idea that universal myths, the quintessential example of which is the Odyssey, represent a quest for meaning, maturity, and mastery that is repeated by human beings in infinite forms. I point out right now that the word myth is sometimes misused. It comes from a Greek word muthos, which basically means a story, an narrative, or something like this. If you look at uh, if you look at the idea basically of the of the grand myths like the Aeneas, the Odyssey, or even even uh, the biblical story of Christ, you talk about a, a journey, a return, an adventure, and a return that is repeated in infinite forms. According to this view, the hero makes a journey marked by departure, adventure, and return. For Danello, the universal myth also describes the veteran's quest. Lifting ourselves up, finding new experiences, drawing in the old soul's ancient wisdom, and making ourselves more useful to our families, communities, and country. Mattis, Marlanis, and Danello all treat the veteran as an object of admiration and respect, not a victim. But as Mattis observes, the veteran-ist victim narrative exerts a profoundly powerful influence over the American people. It can be seen in the news stories that paint by veterans as over-represented over -re over in rates of suicide, drug abuse, 
homelessness, and incarceration. Such sensationalistic stories invariably portray an epidemic of some sort among veterans. Commission of murder. The implication is that veterans have been traumatized by their combat experience and are ticking time bombs who inevitably will commit mayhem against themselves or civilian society. Take a particularly egregious example, a story from the Washington Post in February of 2013 on the academic, uh, epidemic of suicide among veterans, presumably <coughs> resulting from the trauma of combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. It features a photo of a young, healthy Navy SEAL who did indeed commit suicide. Though in reality, this story makes clear that most of the veterans who commit suicide are over 50 with no connection to either of the recent wars. Such stories are fundamentally flawed. <coughs> Do some veterans commit suicide? Are some others afflicted by drug use, homelessness, and incarceration? Of course, but it is always necessary to compare veterans with non-veterans by age cohort, something that sensationalist reporting based on veteran as victim angle habitually fails to do. When such comparisons are made, the claim that veterans are uniquely likely to lead dysfunctional lives falls apart. But the very number of such stories confirms Mattis's contention that the veteran as victim narrative is strongly embedded in the American psyche and seems to be a constant feature of our view of veterans. However, as the old adage has it, it's not the things we don't know that get us into trouble, it's the things we know that just ain't so. But in order to correct the narrative, it is important to understand its origins. Quote, the country doesn't know it yet, but it has created a monster. A monster in the form of millions of men who have been taught to deal and to trade in violence and who are given the chance to die for the biggest nothing in history. Men who have returned with a sense of anger and a sense of betrayal, which no one has yet grasped. So testified John Kerry before the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations in April of 1971. The image of the veteran as victim has its genesis in the anti-Vietnam uh, war left of the 1960s and 70s. According to this image, the Vietnam War was uniquely brutal and unjust, and it brutalized those who fought it. At first, the anti-war left vilified veterans as war criminals and baby killers, but this approach evolved into the idea that the Vietnam veteran is a victim. He was victimized first by his country, which, uh, which disproportionately set off the poor to fight an, an unjust war. Then he was victimized by the military that dehumanized him and turned him into a killer, one who was dangerous to society because he could lash out at any time. The press was complicit in perpetuating this negative stereotype. A fellow named B.G. Burkett, Doug Burkett, and Lena Whitley's great book, Stolen Valor, published in 1998, explains how this works. Burkett used the Freedom of Information Act to check, check the actual records of the image makers used by reporters to flesh out their stories on homelessness, Agent Orange, suicide, drug abuse, criminality, and alcoholism. What he found was astounding. More often than not, the show case veterans who cried on cam camera about their dead buddies, about committing or witnessing atrocities, 
or about some heroic action in combat that led them to their current dead-ended life, were imposters. Many had not never been to Vietnam, or even in the armed services. Burkett's book stands as a rebuke to the generation of journalists who were so predisposed to believe the worst about the Vietnam veteran that they tried to do, they, they failed to do due diligence in checking the facts. The Vietnam vet goes berserk angle became a staple of journalism. A watershed event in the evolution of this genre was the 1998 CBS documentary, The Wall Within, which constituted a veritable character of the Vietnam veterans. During the war, they routinely committed war crimes, with the narrative. They came home from an immoral war, tra traumatized, vilified, and pitied. Jobless, homeless, addicted, suicidal, they remain afflicted by inner conflicts stranded on the fringes of society. It was during the Vietnam War that PTSD became a major issue. While PTSD was not officially recognized as a psychiatric syndrome by the American Psychiatric Association until 1980, the foundation was laid by such anti-Vietnam War psychiatrists as Robert J. Lipton, who claimed that the psychi uh, psychiatric trauma suffered by Vietnam veterans was unique. In other words, since Vietnam was worse than earlier conflicts, returning soldiers were suffering severe psychological effects specific to the war. Vietnam also marked a related uh, change in military psychiatry. In World War I, the psych psychological stress of combat went under the name of shell shock. In World War II, it became combat fatigue. In both of these conflicts, the goal of military psychiatrists was to return the soldier to combat as quickly as possible. Approach is different, but the idea was that traumatized soldiers should be treated as close to the front as possible. Of course, not all could be uh, uh, returned to combat, and many who could be had to be treated, who could not be, had to be treated farther to the rear. The World War II approach was nicely captured by the 1963 movie Captain Newman, M.D., with Gregory Peck, Angie Dickinson, Tony Curtis, and Bobby Darren, in which a soldier who's treated for combat fatigue basically is cured, sends back, and of course is killed, illustrating the military psychiatrist dilemma. Of course, despite the recognition of the medical profession that psychological trauma was a reality, those suffering such, from such maladies were seen often as malingerers or even cowards. A case in point involved General Patton, who on two occasions slapped and berated soldiers who were patients at an evacuation hospital, but without physical injuries during the Sicily, Sicily, Sicily campaign of 1943. One of the interesting things during this period of time is the, the, the change in the perspective of the, of the military psychiatrists. Traditionally, these military psychiatrists had seen their job as salvaging the agitated soldier and returning him to combat. But with Vietnam, psychiatry moved from cooperative stance, vis-a-vis the military, to an adversarial one. The new goal was to keep soldiers from returning from, to combat, to keep them from returning to combat. One wrote, for instance, 
PTSD has formed a perfect bridge between the horrors of combat in Vietnam and the supposedly widespread readjustment problems of its veterans. Today's PTSD orientation focused on an irreparably broken veteran as directly traceable to Vietnam. The ideological basis of PTSD as a disease caused by service in Vietnam gave opponents the reward incentive to claim that the malady was very widespread, leading to soaring estimates of the disorder's incidence among Vietnam veterans. Indeed, some have claimed that as many as half of those who served in Vietnam suffered from PTSD, which seems implausible given the fact that only about 15% of those who served in Vietnam took part in combat. But the ideological uh, predisposition to overdiagnose PTSD soon became linked to a bureaucratic one. Just as PTSD was becoming an issue after Vietnam, the Veterans Administration was facing budget cuts due to the precipitous decline of the World War II veterans population. Thus, the VA had an incentive to overdiagnose PTSD in order to protect its budget. Ideology and the self-interest of bureaucrats constituted a very powerful combination. In addition, there's a conceptual problem that helps to explain some of the recent problems in VA. Most diagnoses of PTSD fail to distinguish between the stress that most combat veterans experience in the aftermath of combat, including um, which is called post-traumatic stress, and a more or less permanently disabling neuropsychiatric disease, PTSD, properly understood. Just about anyone who has been exposed to combat has at one time or another exhibited symptoms of PTS, that is post-traumatic stress, hypervigilance, flashbacks, insomnia, nightmares, depression, guilt, particularly survivor's guilt, and psychic numbing. But most veterans prevail over their demons and, like Odysseus, return home. Thus, as Mattis observed, the crucible of combat can lead to post-traumatic growth. The problem is that all too often PTS and PTSD are conflated. This is probably one of the factors that led to the recent scandals afflicting the Veterans Administration. Is that agency dragged down by bureaucratic inertia and incompetence? The answer is most certainly yes. It is also the case that the VA is swamped by disability claims for PTSD, which for bureaucratic and political reasons, as suggested before, is overdiagnosed. The problem is that since not all of these are valid, you have a bureaucratic version of Gresham's Law. That is, bad claims of PTSD often drive out the good. Moreover, the veteran as victim's narrative is hampered efforts by those who want to distinguish between valid and invalid claims of neuropsychiatric disorder resulting from combat. Attempts to draw this distinction have often been blocked by the assumption that to question any claim of a veteran is to deny him what is his by right, reinforcing the veteran's status as a victim. The tragedy here is that unjustified claims of disability arising from overdiagnosis of PTSD means that less money is available to ensure that those truly suffering, suffering are receiving the care they need. 
A milestone of sorts of, uh, of the veteran his victim's narrative occurred near the end of Bill Clinton's presidency when he designed, uh, signed legislation authorizing a plaque near the Vietnam Veterans Memorial to commemorate veterans who died after the Vietnam War of maladies attributed to Agent Orange and PTSD. According to the New York Times, quote, experts es estimate that the number of veterans who died of these conditions is at least equal to the number inscribed on the wall, 58,220. There's not an ounce of scientific evidence to support this breathtaking assertion. Worse, the addition of the plaque to the uh, memorial reinforces the stereotype of the Vietnam War veteran as victim. Indeed, the Times made the connection explicitly in its headline, New Category of Victims, New Category of Victims of the Vietnam War. But the veterans of Vietnam have rejected the victim narrative. In response to a comprehensive VA survey taken in 1980, 91% of respondents who had seen combat in Vietnam reported that they were glad they had served their country. A healthy 80% agreed with the statement that the U.S. took it, uh, disagreed with the statement that the U.S. took advantage of me. Nearly two out of three that they said that they'd go back to Vietnam even knowing the way the war would end. If Vietnam veterans have largely rejected the Viet veterans as victims narrative, so have the veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan. Nevertheless, they have also had to make the journey of Odysseus to return from war to peace. As, um, as uh, David Danello, as I said before, who's a veteran of, of uh, Iraq says, as we return, as we return, we feel ourselves growing strong in our uh, center. Like stressed vines making wine, the broken places strengthen our resolve and sweeten our spirits. Combat's magic and malevolence can never be, can never leave us, but we draw on the same places inside us as we move ahead. When we first come home, awareness of the fundamental truths of war and peace, appreciation of their explosive and tragic dualities, and application of combat's virtues in routine contexts makes us masters of the universal journey inside our heads, minds, and spirit. Violent demons of death and desperation threaten but vibrant dreams of dynamism and destiny emerge. We struggle to direct combat um, energy towards civilian life. I'm sorry, I wrote that down myself. I just uh, can't read my own writing. I think this is what Mattis meant when he talked about post-traumatic growth. And it, more than the disease orientation of PTSD, describes how the journey home that most veterans successfully made. There are two images that serve as metaphors for the veterans' return from war. The first, which beautifully captures the duality of human life, is Homer's description in the Iliad of the shield of Achilles, which depicts, among other things, the city of war and the city of peace. Of course, Achilles, unlike most veterans, will never get to enjoy the fruits of the city of peace. The second is a passage from uh, Wolfram von Eschenbach's medieval epic Parzival, 
which eliminates the psychological split within the veteran engendered by war. Shame and honor clash, or the courage of the steadfast man is motley like the magpie. But such a man may yet make merry, for heaven and hell have equal parts in him. Thank you very much.